One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com dot com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's better help com slash sacred text. Chapter seven, the sorting hat. The door swung open at once. A tall black haired witch in emerald green robe stood there. She had a very stern face and Harry's first thought was that this was not someone to cross. I'm Matt Potts. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So Matt, something happened when I was 14, and I wish I could tell you what, but I don't remember. But like someone at school was mean to me, and I was very sad about it. And I felt like, not just sad, but (laughs) something that I still feel, which is that I was a perfect innocent victim, and that they had committed a crime against me that like was unwarranted. And like out of nowhere. And again, I don't remember what happened. I just remember that feeling. And I went over to my friend John's house and we were talking about it and his parents were listening to and they were like, oh my God, Vanessa, you are a perfect, innocent victim. And I'm so sorry that this atrocious thing happened to you. And I was like, thank you, me too. And then I was being walked out by John. My mom was picking me up and John said to me, you know, Vanessa, The best revenge is a good life. And it was the first time I'd heard that expression, and it meant a lot to me. And then I turned around to open the door, and I saw that his parents had it, like, cross-stitched on a thing right behind my head, and he was reading it and making fun of me. And so I suddenly felt shame that it had meant so much to me. (laughs) But that expression has stayed with me because every once in a while, right, these, like, platitudes or expressions can actually mean quite a bit to you, like the best revenge is a good life. But I am very curious as to whether that is actually 
a good revenge. And if there's ever good revenge, if living a good life as revenge actually cheapens your good life, we see Harry in this chapter is like not only having a good life, but is really carrying with him, comparing this now good life with his life at the Dursleys. But he's not sitting there thinking, oh my God, I get to eat all this food. I never got to eat all of this food at the Dursleys. Ha ha, revenge. And so I that is just one of the many questions I want to bring today about revenge is whether or not if we live for revenge, it cheapens other experiences. Well, first of all, what sort of family has a quote about revenge cross-stitched in their front hallway? Like, what is going on? Right by the front door. Right by the front door. I know. What is going on there that, like, we need to remind one another that we will not exact vengeance today? But one of the things about that is, like, one one way to understand revenge potentially is as, like, sort of tit-for-tat retaliation. Someone hurt you, you hurt them back. So, strictly speaking, living well isn't revenge because you're actually not visiting upon your enemy what they visited upon you. On the other hand, it's really interesting in your story, you have no recollection of what the harm done to you was, right? That actually the feeling of being harmed was more important than the harm itself. And in that sense, then maybe the undoing of the harm is actually to to live well. What the harm done to you needed was not to be visited upon your enemy, but just to to be overcome, to be supported by friends who who could tease you in the front hallway underneath their <laughs> odd cross-stitch about revenge. <laughs> what you needed was just to feel better about things. And so maybe another way to read this line is not living well is the best revenge, but living well is better than revenge, right? It, it treats your heart better. It treats you, you as a person better, maybe in the long run. Yeah. Well, I have so much to say about that, but let's do a 30-second recap first. I was trying to say as much as possible so we could avoid it. <laughs> Fine. Sorry. Matt, don't worry. Everyone already has low expectations of you. I will valiantly meet those expectations in the next 30 seconds. I believe in you. On your mark. Get set. Go. So they're at Hogwarts and the door opens and McGonagall is there. And McGonagall is kind of not very nice and seems like they have a big test for their sorting ceremony. And Harry says, I can't pass tests because I'm a, a new wizard. And they realize they go out into the hallway and there's a big hall and there's a sorting hat there. And they realize, oh, it's not a test. It's just a, a sorting hat. And the sorting hat sings a song, which is very brief compared to future songs. And then everyone's sorted and Harry is in Gryffindor, but maybe he wanted, maybe he should have been in Slytherin. And then he has a dream that he ought to be in Slytherin. And what's going to happen? That's 30 seconds. I feel like I missed some things. I missed, oh, wait, I don't want to tell you what I missed because then you can pick them up because we're a team. This is not a competition. There it is. You figured it out. <laughs> you just did a 10-second recap of the 30-second recaps. <laughs> You're so versatile. Uh, do you want to count me in? I'd love to. Three, two, one, go. So Hermione is reciting spells to herself and Neville's like they didn't even think I was magic, but then they were excited I was magic and they got me a toad. And then they go through and everybody gets sorted and the hat is like, hmm, should you be in Slytherin? And before the hat even touches um, Draco's head, it's like Slytherin and there are ghosts everywhere and there seems to be some like anger and feelings amongst the ghosts and Sir Nicholas de Mimsy Pompsy, Pompty, whatever, wants to be called by his name and the trunks get brought up by house elves and everybody's tired. That's great. You also missed what I thought I missed. You got a couple of things I just didn't remember at all, which is great. Yeah. That's why we're a team. What did I miss that you thought you missed? Dumbledore's so loopy in this. <laughs> Who Dumbledore is takes a real 
shift through the course of the books. I feel like at the beginning, he is much more clownish. He's played for humor more at the beginning than he ever is later in the books. Don't you think that that's because it's like peacetime? So he's like, there's no Voldemort. Harry Potter's here. Everything's fine. Oh, by the way, there's something like that could murder you on the third floor, but don't worry about it. That's what I mean. The Dumbledore knows it's not peacetime. He would not send Hagrid to the vault to get the Philosopher's Stone if he thought it were peacetime, if he didn't know it was under threat. I think it's J.K. Rowling figuring out who Dumbledore is, and she's writing her way into the character. And she, at the beginning, she thinks he's going to be a little bit more, he's going to play for humor more, and, and he becomes like, you know, wise old wizard at the end. Yeah, no, and I think that the tone for this whole chapter has that. The Hogwarts song is so silly, nitwit, oddment blubber tweak is so silly, right? Like there's a lot of silliness as the tone in this chapter. This is just true of the books overall. There's so much more whimsy to the wizarding world early on. Like you get less and less whimsy as you move through seven books. And I will say it seems like a cultivated and curated and intentional whimsy under Dumbledore's rule at Hogwarts. Like Peeves is there and there's one dish on the table that doesn't belong. And It seems almost like a Seder table that is like designed to have something obscure and odd and random. And I love that. You're actually bringing me back to your reading. I think that maybe there is there's a little bit more peacetime Dumbledore in this, that there's like part of what it means to be magical is to be whimsical. Part of it is to like kind of relish the inexplicable or the unexpected and to to embrace it like like the like the singing at this at the end where everybody sings to their own tune but the juxtaposition between Dumbledore is very like whatever tune you feel like singing is the music we need to hear and that's great and if it sounds like a cacophony of like odd noises in this great hall that's music and we will enjoy it versus like the Dursleys which is like unless you follow every particular rule of what it means to be a Dursley in this house not only will you be like, will it be not acceptable? You'll be admonished. You'll be punished because the magical world is so open to the unexpected. Like people are allowed to not be normal, which is, you know, the first line of the book. I also think that it might be a sign of great pedagogy at Hogwarts in this one moment of this feast is about the first years, right? Like you cheer whenever anyone joins your house, which is so funny because I'm like this, you don't know who they are and they don't know what they're joining, but like, okay, yay. And so I feel like even Dumbledore not being serious is an intentional choice to welcome these 11-year-olds who are scared. And like if the big scary headmaster can just be silly and make sure that their bellies are full first and foremost, I feel like that sets a great tone. But we do see signs of revenge even in the discussion about sorting. Sir Nicholas is like, ugh, we have to win this year because I can't take the Bloody Baron winning again with the House Cup. I feel like at the very beginning, this conversation about houses immediately becomes problematic to me. I love what McGonagall says about like your house is going to be your home for, you know, and will really be your family. And then immediately it's like, and the families compete as to who can be the best family. And you're going to win this arbitrary cup that means nothing, but we will brainwash you that it means something in an attempt to control you. But is that revenge, though? That's I mean, that's competitiveness. Like, maybe we could talk about competitiveness. But, like, revenge, it seems to me, presumes an initial wrong. The wrong is that the Slytherins have won for six years in a row. 
I don't know if that's revenge. You know, I've played on sports teams or whatever. If if you play a team that beat you in the past, maybe there's something about like getting back at them, but it's more like wanting to win. It's a general competitiveness. But maybe you're right. Maybe there's like a, a spectrum of like one-upsmanship upon which both competitiveness, a sense of competitiveness and vengefulness lies on the spectrum of one-upsmanship. I think that there's something about a team that always wins, like the Patriots or the Yankees, where you start to really tell yourself a story of like, well, they have corrupt practices. They have more money. They cheat by deflating their footballs. I think it becomes about a little bit more than competition, right? And we'll see later in the books that the Slytherins play dirty. They'll pretend not to hear whistles when they've obviously heard the whistle and they're going to fight to hurt even though you're not supposed to. And I mean, I can absolutely see this, just this competitiveness, but I feel like between everybody else, and I guess the fact that like all the other houses hate Slytherin, it's like Ravenclaw, Hufflepuff, and Gryffindor against Slytherin, it feels like this need for revenge, at least revenge in the like, I want to take you down a peg. Now, see, this is interesting. I'm still not sure I entirely buy the competitiveness revenge thing. However, I'm starting to become convinced that they do exist on a spectrum of one-upsmanship. There's a book by a, a very famous philosopher named Martha Nussbaum called Anger and Forgiveness. And when she speaks about revenge, or she calls it the, a, a vengeful fantasy or whatever, she says that what revenge indicates is the desire to take somebody down a peg, to change status. Someone who is above me, like one way I can bring them down to my level or even place myself above them relatively is to defeat them. And so the idea of retaliation or retaliatory anger in her model is actually less about tit for tat, less about returning harm for harm and more about relative status. Like you think you're above me, actually we're the same or I'm above you, right? And you really can see that in the way that they talk about the cup competition, right? Like the Slytherins aren't better than us. We need to prove to them that they're not better than us. And although I think that is something different, I think that is competitiveness. You know, a very famous philosopher like Martha Nussbaum would say that that instinct is also what undergirds revenge, also undergirds the urge to retaliate. And I think that we see maybe something a little bit further on the spectrum toward revenge in the ghosts conversation about Peeves. They want Peeves to be put in his place, but they also want to change his behavior. They're like, he keeps going too far. And so I'm wondering if you can help me discern the difference between like punishment and revenge, especially like punishment based in like the carceral system seems to me to be a little bit about revenge, like you hurt someone and so we're going to punish you now. When to me, any punishment should really about attempting to change someone's behavior to like no longer be harmful in the future. But it seems like the ghosts want revenge on Peeves and they're not like he needs to learn so that he can stop doing X, Y, and Z. The problem with all these words is that they're like, they cover so many meanings. In part of its etymology, punish could potentially include the idea of pain. It might include just the idea of teaching or whatever. In its historical meaning, includes both things. It includes like, yes, people should feel pain when they do something wrong because that's what wrong deserves. But there's also a, a historical sense in which punishment is about you know, the idea of discipline, that word comes from the same word as disciple. It means being a learner, being a student, right? It means being taught the right thing. 
I think one thing that's true is that the idea of revenge doesn't seem to presume education the way discipline can. Discipline doesn't always and doesn't need to. And in fact, if you look at the way that that we discipline and punish people in schools or in contemporary society, discipline tends to have a lot more to do with retaliation than rehabilitation or a lot more with punishment than with pedagogy. But at least there's a potential of it in something like punishment. It seems to if revenge is meant to teach the other person anything, it's something more like you're not better than me or I'm better than you, even though you think you're better than me. And the instrument used to, to affect that instruction is usually some kind of pain, whether physical or, you know, in the case of incarceration, spiritual. And not that incarceration is not physically painful as well. It is. But relative to everything we were saying before about revenge as an assertion of worth, that is an assertion of relative status, even if it is through an act of reciprocal violence or violation, that starts to kind of point to the logic behind the cross stitch in your friend's front hallway. Because what is the best way to show someone that you are of worth? Is it to show them that you are strong enough to hurt them the way you hurt, they hurt you? Or is it to live in such a way that you have a really rich life? I, so I'm wondering if you think that Harry, like, thriving at school is revenge to the Dursleys. He just had his belly filled with all of his favorite foods. The, like, last thing, it's my favorite, the last thing he wants to say to Ron, but he's too sleepy, is, did you have the treacle tart? He's literally falling asleep thinking about how delicious this meal was. And they, like, never let him eat enough. And now he's somewhere that, like, they can't touch him. Is that revenge? See, this is where I think the idea of living well is the best revenge also doesn't quite work. Because if revenge is like this way of asserting one's worth to the person who harmed you, I think there are limits to how much you can convince that of someone who is just hateful towards you. I think Harry could go back to Vernon Dursley and say, guess what? I got more wizarding money than you have muggle money. And I ate all this delicious food brought to me by house elves on gold platters. And Vernon Dursley would hate all of it. He would say, I wouldn't touch your wizard, your wizard money, and I wouldn't taste that wizard food because it's all sullied by the fact that it's your lot doing wizarding stuff. The animosity and, and hatred or resentment of the Dursleys goes too deep that they can never be convinced. As long as Harry is who he is, they're never going to be persuaded of his relative status or his worth. The idea that revenge is an assertion of self-worth it might be true that it's an assertion of self-worth, but it's not an assertion that the one who harmed you is going to always believe, right? Or always be persuaded by. Totally. And that is the level on which I don't believe in revenge. I don't believe it works. I think self-satisfied people are going to go to their grave self-satisfied and like you can't convince them otherwise. They either will learn humility or they won't. They'll either learn their lessons or they won't. But I don't think revenge is effective. Yeah, I think that I'm very skeptical of revenge as a... Is it an act? Is it an emotion? I don't know. Maybe it's both. But I also wonder about the practical use of it. Because if revenge is an attempt to restore one's self-worth, like, you can't change another person's opinion of you in many cases, no matter what you do, like the Dursleys with Harry. And the best way to, like, establish your self-worth is to do what you did in your original story, which is to go to people who do see what's good in you and listen to them and let them care for you. 
which is what Harry's doing. Like, like, like this is the living well part. He's going to Hogwarts and actually the journey, the emotional journey he needs to go on is to believe all these other people who say he's special and he's a good person and a good wizard so that he can forget the Dursleys and all they did to him. I'm wondering, I'm not sure that we can make this about revenge, but I'm wondering what you make of the fact that Hogwarts from the very beginning is such a violent school. There's a half-beheaded person. You don't go to the forest because there are deadly creatures in there and the third floor might kill you. This sounds like safety hazard galore. I understand that the world is a scary place, but I feel like we sort of have the belief that schools should be as safe as possible. And I know that in the United States, they're not, but in theory, they should be. So I'm just wondering what you make of the fact that Hogwarts is like so violent and terrifying. I don't know. Like, it's such a good question because like these places are so dangerous and children are always almost dying at Hogwarts. And that's, that's, that's not safe conditions for the best wizarding school in the world. But again, like one of the things we've talked about, I think, or at least I've, I believe I've spoken of in other episodes in this second run of the series is like, it's so hard as a non-wizard or as a muckle to like gauge what acceptable risk is in the wizarding world. If you can be healed of life-threatening injuries pretty completely and relatively painlessly, I mean, sometimes it's painful, but you know what I mean? If, if you can be restored from serious injury pretty successfully and simply, what is the risk then? It's hard to read how irresponsible folks are being. I feel like, you know, any headmaster who says, by the way, there's one floor of the building you live in, which if you visit it, will lead to your certain painful death. Like, that's not that's not a responsible headmaster. Nope. Like, to me, I'm like, that sounds like a you problem, headmaster, and fix that. It would be like me putting dinner in front of the kids and being like, don't eat it. It's poisoned. <laughs> I feel like they'd look at me and be like, no, serve us something else, please. It'd be more like the, the top left corner of this plate <laughs> is poisonous. Yes. Enjoy everything else. <laughs> be careful of that part. And so, like, I think you're right. Like, clearly they are not responsible. But I do want to return to, to Nearly Headless Nick because, you know, beheading is a punishment. I'm, I'm assuming that Nearly Headless Nick was beheaded as a form of official punishment. It's not like, oh, we were in battle and you almost cut my head off, but you didn't. It was like, no, an, we officially sanctioned an act of violence as a retaliatory or a revenge response to some wrong that you committed. You asked earlier in the episode, Vanessa, like, what's the relationship between revenge and punishment? And I think the short answer to that question is, in the West, there has not been a very big distinction between revenge and punishment. Uh, And the reason why we have trouble articulating what the distinction is, is because we have presumed vengefulness in our acts of punishment for most of our history in the West. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, before we end our theme conversation, I'm wondering if you can make anything for me about Quirrell's turban. It seems to be made much of, and I'm wondering what you make of it. On the one hand, there's just the practicality of if you have another face living in the back of your head, your choice of head coverings is limited, (laughs) right? But I think, you know, one of the things we're trying to do this time through the books is to try to be really critically rigorous with our readings. And I think we can't set aside the fact that a piece of clothing like a turban is heavily racialized and, you know, to put a finer point on it, orientalized in the West, right? Like it signifies a culture which is alien to the dominant culture of Hogwarts, or at least to the the country out of in which Hogwarts is placed. So I think there's a lot going on with Quirrell's turban. I think some of it might, we could be just read very simply and flatly as like, oh, it covers a face on the back of his head. But I also think that we have a responsibility to think about what the implications racially and culturally might be for this kind of headwear. And I it kind of bothers me, frankly. Yeah. It's bothersome. So Matt, just one last thing before we wrap up. I just have to say, I'm not going to bless her for this. So I just have to shout out Hermione in this chapter, who is like sitting there reciting her spells and is just so nervous. That's all. I love her. I love Hermione too. Everybody's like, I don't want her in my house. And I'm like, you're so dumb. Hermione is the MVP house cup candidate, right? Like if you're really good at Quidditch, how many actual points do you get in the house cup every year right Hermione gets like 50 a day she gets 10 in exactly. every class per day she is clearly the MVP in house cup who would not want her so Matt it is now your turn to lead Havruta. So you have brought a question and an answer for us. What have you brought? I have a, a question which I care a lot about, and I'm not sure about the answer, although I'm going to give you one. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation about it. So this chapter is the sorting hat, and everyone gets placed into their houses. And so my question is, is identity given or is it chosen? Like, does somebody give it to you or do you 
give it to yourself? And the answer I came up with is both things. Yeah, that's the only possible answer. I don't mean that as a cop-out, but more as a reminder that like we tend to want it to be one or the other. We tend to want to think that our identities are given to us or that we chose it for ourselves. But falling into one of those two tendencies will will oversimplify what our identity is and what it means and what it ought to mean. And I think that Neville is a great place to look to validate your question and answer. He is a kid whose wizarding abilities are not readily apparent. And that is an identity that he holds, that he carries. A lot of people read different identities onto Neville, but the fact is that his family couldn't see his magical abilities overtly. And then he's also a kid who got thrown off a pier and out of a window. And like, that was not an identity that had to be central to him. Those were choices that were made and put onto him. And then it turned out, right, that he was a kid with some magical abilities because he bounced. But then we're going to see him become this kid who like finds his gifts. And it turns out that he's an incredible wizard and that they just weren't obvious talents for people looking on the outside when he was little. And through friendship, he becomes more confident. And through Voldemort choosing to read the prophecy onto Harry, he becomes like not the chosen one, right? We see how complicated identity is in Neville, but he will never not have been the kid whose magic was not clear when he was little, like that will always be true about him and key informing him, even though at the end, right, like he's the one who chops the head off Nagini and he is like this amazing magical person. Right. There's something just true about Neville from the beginning. Like he has some certain magical capacities in him, even though they're not yet revealed. By the time he goes to Hogwarts or maybe, you know, not for a few years after he gets to Hogwarts, you know, in terms of some of his magical abilities. Right. So he has them. It's part of who he is. On the other hand, that identity as a wizard doesn't really count until and unless he gets the letter from Hogwarts, which says you are invited to come to Hogwarts. So on the one hand, they can't give it to him because it's either there or it's not. On the other hand, whether it's there or not doesn't matter until the letter comes and it's and it's kind of confirmed by whatever institution has the authority to confirm it. Right. And this is I think this is what I mean about sort of it has to be both. If you have it in yourself, but it's not acknowledged publicly, then identity is about relation. It's about how you relate to the rest of the world and un- until it's acknowledged. But on the other hand, it can't depend entirely upon the world acknowledging it because you're still you. I mentioned when I framed the question that it's important to me personally, and it's just because like my own ethnic identity is really complicated. And I tend to think of myself as Japanese because it is that what is what was given to me, right? I feel like I was born to a Japanese woman and I grew up feeling close to Japanese culture. But I also feel like I can't just be about what I choose because I also know that because I have an English last name and because my dad is has European ancestry, right? Like I also enjoy a lot of the privileges of whiteness. And if I say my identity is only about what I choose, then that becomes really a really convenient way for me to forget all the ways in which I am privileged by these identities, which are given to me and not chosen necessarily, right? Especially when we think about like these houses, like and and since so much personality stuff goes along with the houses, like where does this come from? What happens when you get marked with these affiliations and identities, especially in a place like Hogwarts, where the stakes between the houses are very high and also the identities of each house are so well formed? 
Yeah, I mean, so my response question to you is why is Harry so committed to not being in Slytherin? Obviously, Haggard has told him, like, there isn't a witch or wizard who's gone bad who hasn't been in Slytherin. Then McGonagall is like, all four houses are great and they all have great traditions. And I think I forget because I'm always like, oh, he's probably really wanting to be in Gryffindor because the Weasleys are all in Gryffindor and those are the people he's met. And Haggard was in Gryffindor and he loves Haggard. So, like, everyone he's met who he's liked has been in Gryffindor. But he doesn't sit there and chant Gryffindor, Gryffindor. He says not Slytherin. And I feel like that is about a belief that maybe he's defined by this thing that happened to him when he was one and that he has a connection with Voldemort. And also he's been like told by the Dursleys his whole life that he's evil. And so like he doesn't want that part of him validated in any way. And he's going to constantly try to shirk that off. And we know that he's not going to be able to because, like, he can speak parcel tongue, and he has this connection with Voldemort living inside his head. And, like, whether or not he is sorted into Slytherin, he is part Slytherin. Yeah, I wanted to read it the way you did, too. I think you're right that it's more complicated than that. I wanted to say, like, oh, he likes Ron. He knows Ron. Of course he wants to be with Ron, right? But he doesn't say Gryffindor, Gryffindor. He says not Slytherin. I think maybe it's he doesn't want to be with Malfoy. I think that he knows Malfoy's Bad news. And and also Crab and Goyle, who we met on the train and almost got into a fight with. I also read it as just like, oh, I like Ron. I know Ron. I want to be with Ron. I think if Harry had gotten Hufflepuff or Ravenclaw, he wouldn't have been as excited, but he would have been just as relieved. Well, Matt, thank you for bringing that great Havruta question. I am very grateful. Thanks for your question and reply. I think that really, actually, I think your response question actually illuminated the stakes of the first question. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Today's voicemail is from Ashley. Hi, Vanessa and Matt and the rest of the Harry Potter Sacred Text team. This is Ashley. I was actually in the Together in Quarantine class with Vanessa and Casper, so I don't know if Vanessa remembers me because my Zoom name ended up being Miss Ashley because I'm a teacher. But getting back to what the point of my voicemail was, you guys asked for voicemails from your Black community members about how we see ourselves in the text. And although there aren't necessarily enough Black members represented in the text, I definitely saw myself as Harry, especially in book one, because I read the Harry Potter books significantly late in life. Um, My dad was not really into the whole witchcraft part of Harry Potter. So, you know, they weren't something that I got exposed to until high school. And then I actually read the first Harry Potter book in college. And I remember thinking that like my letter of acceptance to Spelman, which was an HBCU, which highly contrasted the school that I went to, which was predominantly white. My acceptance letter was like my letter to Hogwarts. I feel like when I walked into Spelman's gate, it was like walking into Diagon Alley where I had people that were talking about cultures that I had never heard about that were It was just so much a whole world that had just opened up that was pretty much always there the way the Wizarding World is in the books. But I didn't know about it because I didn't have a large community around me that supported that knowledge. I had my mom and my dad, unlike Harry, but I didn't have a school that cultivated that and made that an integral part of the curriculum. It was always a, oh, here's a Black history lesson. We're just going to throw this to the side. Whereas when I went to an HBCU, it was a part of everything. It was in our programs. It was in our lessons. And it was nice to see people who looked like me out and about, which is how I think Harry felt when he finally got around people that were able to teach him what magic was and figure out what, how to navigate through the world when you're a wizard and how to navigate in spaces where you're with muggles, where you might have to not necessarily hide that you're, well, in Harry's case, you have to hide that you're a wizard. And in our case, we don't necessarily have to hide that we're black, but how to navigate those spaces well. And so I just want to give a blessing to anybody who's trying to figure out how to navigate a space where they don't necessarily belong, which is how I felt for pretty much my whole academic career Um, to any of the black listeners out there who are still trying to figure out what they want to do with their life or haven't figured out where they want to go to college. Consider an HBCU. They're amazing schools. They generate a lot of successful African-Americans throughout the country. And on top of that, like the brothers and sisters you walk away with are literally like my Ron and Hermione, like, they're my best friends, and I can't imagine doing anything without them. And I met them at Spelman, and I I couldn't imagine my world without them. Thank you guys so much for what you do on the podcast, and I can't wait to listen. Bye. Ms. Ashley, I remember you. We DM on Instagram all the time. I'm actually hurt that you think I might not remember you, but that's fine. 
I love this comparison of HBCUs to Hogwarts and to the wizarding world in general. I think that it's finding out that you have a connection that you didn't know you had, but was just out there waiting for you. And on a different level, I mean, I feel that way about my family. Like I got to sort of get adopted into this already family with Peter and his kids. And it feels so kindred and easy and joyful that the way we talk about it is that we joke, can you imagine a world in which the kids didn't know Rory and Rory didn't know the girls? And we like cannot imagine that world. And so that feeling of finding out that there is a world that was just ready and waiting for you is just such a beautiful feeling. And I'm so glad you had that at Spellman. And I think that you're absolutely right. That is exactly the feeling that Harry is having here. Another thing that your voicemail reminds me of just actually is like just how white people project their experience onto other characters without any anxiety whatsoever. And so much of our culture is built about allowing them to do that. Like, it's really important to me that Black people, African-Americans who are living, listening to our podcast and reading these books aren't looking for the Black characters and saying like, oh, I can speak about the Black characters. But they're saying like, no, I will tell you about Harry, right? Because being able to universalize one's own experience is actually part of what it means to just to be a human, to try to like think about what it would be like to be somebody else, to think about what it would be like to be somebody who's not you, right? And that's a, a luxury we afford and a privilege we afford in the West, in white culture. It's a privilege we afford whiteness, but not one we typically extend to to others. And I'm just really grateful for our listeners who may not share identities with the identities of the characters in this book, but want to sh- to tell us how their experiences can illuminate these characters for us. Yeah, and I feel like exactly that, right? It's not just that Ashley's telling us that she learned from Harry, but Ashley sharing her experience allows us to learn about Harry, too. To learn more about Harry than we would otherwise, right? Exactly. It is now time for us to remember the friends and family members of our community who were lost due to COVID. Lauren Mason, who was 59, a beloved dad, was joyful and had a big heart. William Minshall, who was 93, his final words were, come get me, baby, said to a photo of his wife of 70 years. Deanna S., who was 74, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and talented quilter. Keith Newman, who was 79, a father, storyteller, magician, and chocolate fiend. Irving Scharf, who was 86, a grandfather, a baker, gardener, dedicated father. And Honey Rosen, who was 83, a family matriarch and a passionate dancer. May their memories be a blessing to us all. So, Matt, I am so excited to bless Neville Longbottom. I've wanted to bless him for years and was constructed by my own rule of only blessing women. But Neville got thrown off a pier and almost drowned. And that is so traumatic. And he also got thrown out of a window and luckily he bounced. And I think I want to offer a blessing for those moments that I think are especially true in childhood 
where you think something traumatic is about to happen and then it turns out that it wasn't that traumatic, but you can't retroactively be like not scared. Like it is still traumatic just because you thought that the bad thing was gonna happen, right? Like a bad dream about a monster under your bed is almost as bad as a monster actually being under your bed because you think there's a monster under your bed, which is so stressful. And so even though Neville bounced, he thought he was gonna be dropped out a window and killed. So I just want to bless Neville for all the torture he went through as a child and for all the kids out there who have been scared of things that have turned out to not be scary. It doesn't mean that they weren't scary when you went through them. Vanessa, I would like to bless Hannah Abbott, who is the first student sorted. I feel like that's terrifying. You are in a line, every single person at your school, plus every teacher, plus the ghosts you just met are staring at you and they're like, so we're going to do this thing. Not sure what it feels like. Maybe there's a test. Might hurt. You go first, Hannah Abbott. And she just walks up there and just gets it done. I God bless Hannah Abbott for being the first and, and doing it and making everybody else feel better. You deserve a blessing. Absolutely. People often ask me if it was hard to be a Z at the end. And I was like, no, you always knew exactly what was going to happen. It was great. This exact thing. You would watch people like trip over a rock seven times at graduation. You'd be like, got it. I know where the rock is. I'm not going to trip. Don't step on that rock. That's right. It was great. Where is the, which chance, what chance did the Abbots stand? None. A, B. She's at the beginning no matter what. Hannah Abbott gets behind Hank Aaron in a line and she's like, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. For at least the alphabetical reason. <laughs> For Yes, right. For only alphabetical reasons, right? If it's a home run hitting contest, then she's very upset. Yeah, then she's like, I can't do that. <laughs> That's right. Okay, so Matt, next week we are reading chapter eight, The Potions Master. What should our theme be? I asked this question about identity in our Havruta practice, and I think I would like us to talk about belonging. What do you think? Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, everybody, chapter eight, the potions master through the theme of belonging. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people who are supporting us on Patreon. Please leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail with your blessing. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by Juliana Bradley. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Miss Ashley for this week's voicemail, Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Kyle, and Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who has sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone, and we will talk to you next week. Got the blooper out of the way, everyone. <laughs> no, I didn't record it. I wasn't recording. Oh, I've been recording. You monster. Monster seems a little bit out of bounds for not recording a blooper.